And while the children are being dismissed, please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and that's on page 1045 in your, uh, in your pew Bible. James chapter 4, 1045. It's Mother's Day, and of course, that makes us think about our mothers. And when I think about my mother, of course, I think about growing up in my family. And something that you probably don't know about me, but uh, if you, my brother was here, you would know it about me very quickly, is that growing up, my brother and I thought, fought about everything. I don't know if you have a sibling, if that was true about you, but for my, me and my brother, especially as we got to a certain age, every single thing we did was a battle. If we took a trip in the car, there would have to be an imaginary line drawn between the back seat. Back then, you know, of course, we had a, uh, the bench seats, and there would be a line drawn imaginary. Do not cross this line. And of course, what did I do when we were driving together? I'd find my hand just kind of slowly crossing that line. Have you ever experienced that? My brother would take my, his hand and draw the line firmer, and I would, of course, slide. And then when that didn't work, I would find myself just staring at the side of my brother's face. What was the point of that? Why was I doing that? Because I wanted to annoy him. That was why I did it. I stared at his face until he became uncomfortable. And then he became uncomfortable, he started whining to my parents. And when he started whining to my parents, my parents got agitated and told him to stop. And so then I would have to find some new way to bother my brother. But of course, he bothered me too. seems like every single thing I did, he would find a way to complain about it. And he would tattle on me. Remember that term, tattletale? Yes, my brother was a terrible tattletale. I think I spent most of my time in my childhood grounded for one thing or another that I did because of my brother. Why did this happen? It's because each of us wanted something. Both of us saw the other person as an obstacle to what we wanted. Because my brother was in the way of what I wanted, whether it was some attention from my parents or whether it was because of some toy or some piece of candy or some thing we might be able to do, and he saw me in the same light, we fought. Of course, as a mother, what did my mom want? My mom just wanted us to get along. Our mom wanted us to love each other. Of course, that's what moms still want to this day. Makes my wife so happy when we see the kids all home and they're all together and they're playing and laughing and getting along and not fighting. It's one of the greatest gifts you can give to a mom is to have siblings not fighting. And not just to not fight, but to love one another. What is grieving to a mom's heart is when she kids see her kids fighting, and we understand that. Even if we're not parents, we understand why that would be painful. But it's only a small tragedy compared to the comparison of when two believers, or in another case, when two churches, or when groups of churches, when God's people, people that are children of God, people that are ransomed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, who are forgiven, each of them individually and corporately, of astronomical debts against God. When those people, children of God, redeemed, ransomed, forgiven, when those people are at war with each other, it grieves the heart of God. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, 
And maybe if you're not a Christian here this morning and you're just watching from a distance, you're trying to observe what's happening in our culture. If you've been a Christian, you've seen it. I think maybe that's one of the biggest reasons why people leave the church is because of the fighting. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably been a part of it. If you turn on social media and maybe spend two minutes on Facebook or 30 seconds on Twitter, you'll see it. But it goes way back before that. As someone who was alive before Facebook and before Twitter and before Instagram, I can tell you with confidence that the fighting within God's people has gone on before there was social media to provoke it. Let me tell you about the worship wars. Any of you remember those? What in the world are they doing with a drum on the stage? They can't love Jesus with a drum. What if they're playing guitars? Well, clearly that's, that, that, that's horrible. Or what if they're projecting the words under the screen? And if the worship wars aren't bad enough, have you ever heard about the carpet wars? Churches have split over the color of carpeting. It's kind of funny, but it's kind of heartbreaking. Or whether we should have an organ or just a piano or whether we should have a piano at all. If you go back far enough in church history, people were splitting churches over whether we should have any instruments or not. And of course, the translation wars. Reading from the NIV, none of you have walked out yet, so maybe that's not as much of a war in this church, but there's been churches, and I've been a part of churches in which people would fight over things like the Bible translation that was being used on Sunday. We understand that Christians sometimes fight that even in a body of people as sweet as we can be, and I think we have a pretty sweet church, that things can arise in a church that cause people to go to war with one another. And even if it's not something that happens here, maybe it's something that you engage in privately on Facebook or through your anonymous Twitter account. We just lob these holy hand grenades at one another, and we're shocked when there's casualties. Last week, Pastor Ricky showed us the two kinds of wisdom from the book of James. He walked us through not just James chapter 3, which was his passage, but helped us make the connections between what was going on in James chapter 1 and James chapter 2 of the two different kinds of wisdom. There's demonic wisdom in chapter 3 that's talked about. Such wisdom, it says in verse 15, does not come from heaven, but is earthly and unspiritual. In fact, James goes so far as to call it demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Of course, not just demonic wisdom, but there's also heavenly wisdom. The contrast to that says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure and then peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy and good fruit and impartial and sincere. They're peacemakers who sow in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is God's truth lived out in my daily life. It's God's truth applied to my life, incorporated into my affections and my desires and what I love, and then it's lived out in my daily life. It's not really wisdom in your life if you're not living it. It's God's truth lived out in my daily life. James is concerned that the theological, 
the, the doctrines that we just professed as we read the Apostles' Creed, the, the scriptures that we're reading, the, the classes that we're learning, the theological terms, and all the, the beauty and the wonders of theology, the things that are in our head. He wants it to not just be in our head, but he wants it to be lived out in our lives every day. Because the theological always becomes practical. The way you live your life reveals what you really believe about God. If I want to know what you believe, I don't necessarily have to quiz you on what you believe theologically. I could watch your life. You could watch my life. The way I live my life reveals what I really believe about God. And so James is concerned. He's building up to this concern in this letter. And now we see why he's concerned. We see why he's so concerned about the tongue. We see why he's so concerned about wisdom. We're seeing why he's so concerned about prejudice within the church. We see why he's so concerned about the rich and the poor and that faith gets lived out and that it's not just a head knowledge, but it's a life lived. Just like a mother mother who doesn't stop being a mother simply because her kids have grown and moved out. James at heart is still a pastor, even though his kids, so to speak, these believers have been scattered. Instead of just being, being in one place, in one church in Jerusalem because of persecution, they've gone off to different places. And little churches have been started, new little bodies of believers. But he's still concerned about them. And he's concerned because these little new little churches have gone through trials. They've experienced real persecution. They're going through growing pains. They're trying to figure out how to be faithful in this new context without the leaders that they had before. But these growing pains, if not checked, will have a dangerous potential. James is concerned because there's fighting in the church. He starts off chapter 4 by saying this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend on what you get for your own pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do any of you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? So as we look at this text, I want us to ask ourselves three questions. Three questions about ourselves and our relationship with others. The first question that we see in this text is this question, what do you want? This morning, I want us to look at ourselves and to examine our hearts and to ask the question, what do you want? James says, fights and quarrels come among you, and where do they come from? He says, don't they come from your desires? Other translations, I think, put this better when they say your passions that battle within you. The NIV uses the same English word both here in verse 1 and verse 2, but in the Greek it's two different kinds of words. The first word, translated here desires, that battle within you, is this word that could be said passions. Um, It also could be the joys. It comes from that word that we use for joy. It's the things that make us happy. What is it that we want? 
He says our fights come from the things that we want, the things that we love. So think of all the things in your life that bring you joy. I'm ashamed to admit how much I love basketball. <laughs> when the Bucks win, I am very, very happy. When the Warriors win, I'm very, very happy. When they lose, I'm not as happy. That's a joy, a small joy in my life. But there's also a lot of other joys that bring me happiness in my life. Sometimes they're serious things. Some things are lighter, like sports. He says, what is it that you love? They come from the desires. Then they battle within you. As Christians, we recognize that even though we're saved and our mind is being renewed by Jesus Christ, there are still some old things that we still love that aren't good for us. They're not even the things that I want. Read Romans chapter 7 where Paul talks about the battle within him that is going on in our lives. There are joys, there are desires that we have. They battle within us. There's also the desire number two here. This is a longing. He says, you desire or you long to have something, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. In our English translations, we see some pretty dramatic words. Fights, quarrels, desires, there's a battle. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. We might imagine this church is just like pulling out knives and baseball bats and guns and everything's going on and it's just a chaotic warfare in the church. That is not exactly what's happening. But we can imagine that the pain that it causes when brothers and sisters in Christ fight is very similar to what the carnage is of a real physical conflict. And that's why James is using dramatic warfare language here. Just like he used dramatic language when he's talking about the tongue. Remember how he talked about the tongue and how it causes like a wildfire? Battles between believers are compared to a devastating war. Fights, battles, killing, murder, devastation. Sometimes you have to turn the news off because you see the pictures of Ukraine and the dead bodies and the devastation, and it's hard for us to let our, if I let my mind go there for too long, it just overwhelms me. I can't handle it. But this is the mentality, this is the mindset I think James wants us to think about. When there's fighting, when there's conflict within the church, this is the kind of devastation that takes place. So where, why does this happen? Why do we fight? He says, our desire, we fight when, my, when our desires come into conflict with someone else's desires. We fight. There's conflict between us when what I want is different than what you want. And when I want what I want, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get what I want, and you want what you want, and you're do it, willing to do whatever it takes to get what you want, when those two lines intersect, there's conflict. When I think of who I love most in this world, I can't help but think of my wife. I really love my wife. I hope you love your spouse. So why do my wife and I fight sometimes? I know that comes as a shock to you, but sometimes my wife and I fight. Is there anyone else like that? Okay, no one else is even moving. So you guys all have perfect marriages, but sometimes we don't have a perfect marriage. And why do I fight? Sometimes I'll wake up in the morning after arguing with my wife and I can't even remember what we argued about. Or when I remember what we were arguing about, it is so infinitesimally petty that I'm ashamed at my response. Why in the world did I care so much about that? She said something, I read into her motives and my feelings were hurt and I all got in my feelings and 
Uh, I'm the emotional one, and she's the logical one in our family, and, and I'm all messed up because of it, and we're bickering and fighting about it. And I look back and think, that was so dumb. She had a hard day. It was a stressful day. I can't believe that I would read into that. I should have just understood that she was dealing with all these pressures, and I should have not have gotten in my feelings like that, and I walk away just feeling so embarrassed because of how stupid I was in the fight. The reason I fight with my wife isn't because I don't love her. It isn't even because we're not close. The reason I fight with my wife is because one thing that I wanted, even if it was small, came into conflict with something she wanted. Our desires and our motives aren't pure all the time. In fact, our desires and our motives are often corrupt. That's what James is saying here. He says, you desire so you do not have. You covet because you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And he goes into this a little bit more detail. I'm going to get in there in a second. So how does this show up in my life? How does my desires and my motives corrupt my thinking in my life? This shows up at work. What happens when you don't get the credit for a job that you ought to have gotten the credit for? Or you get passed over for a promotion that you deserved? We want the credit. Our pride is tweaked. We're angry. We're frustrated. What about in our leisure? We might think to ourselves, I have the right to rest. What I want to do right now is to watch this movie uninterrupted. And so when the kids grab us and they pull us and they want to talk to us, when things are interrupting, when there's chores to be done, we get frustrated because I have the right to rest and you are impeding on my right to rest. Or in marriage, you might feel I have the right to be loved. And not just I have the right to be loved, but I have the right to be loved in the way that I want to be loved. Or in the church, I deserve to be able to use my gifts in the way that best suits me. I have the right to, to serve the Lord and have everyone notice it and praise me if that's what I want, or I have the right to come to church and have everyone ignore me if that's what I feel like I want. I deserve, I want, I have the right to. Do you hear the common phrase here? Our desires and our motives well up with us in these places because what we want is not lined up with what God wants. Wisdom is God's truth lived out in my daily life, and sin occurs when my version of truth supplants God's truth in my life. You hear this a lot in our culture today. Well, I'm going to live my truth. Or my version of religion, or my version of Christianity, or my version of God is such and such and such. The reality is there's only one truth. It's God's truth. There's only one way to view God, and that is the way that God tells us to view him. We don't get the chance and the opportunity to write our own truth or to create our own God. Sin occurs when my version of the truth supplants God's truth in my life. So how should we think about this then? What are God's truths? Instead of the right to say, it's mine, we have the right to understand everything I have is the Lord's. I can remember when my kids were little, and if you have little kids, I'm sure you hear this all the time, they would say, this is mine. Have you ever heard that before from a little kid? It's mine. As soon as they're able to speak, it seemed that they learned two words, no and mine. And my kids would fight with one another and say, this is mine. And I remember my wife as a good Christian mother would say to them, no, this isn't yours. 
And they look at her like, what do you mean? This is my toy. This isn't your toy. You're not playing with it. No, because she'd say to them, and my kids would remember this, everything you have is God's. This isn't yours. This is a gift from God. It's God's. If our perspective on things are, it's mine, then when it's taken away from us, we're frustrated. Instead, we reposition things through God's lens, that everything I have is the Lord's. So if you take it from me, you're not taking it from me, you're taking it from God, so deal with him. Instead of the perspective of who gets the credit, instead, as a Christian, we think God gets the glory. So instead of someone saying, hey, I, I... I feel really upset because you didn't notice what I did. Well, who cares if you noticed what I did? I was going to praise the Lord for it anyway. Is your life yours? Where if people step on your conveniences, you're frustrated? Or is your life lived for Christ where it's supposed to be lived out in sacrifice for others? When we think about our gifts and how we use our gifts, Is it your gift that you're giving to the Lord and that you want people to notice? Or is it your contribution simply viewed through the lens of this is God's gift, not mine? When we see things through God's eyes of everything I have is the Lord's and God gets the glory and my life is given to others and meant to be lived as a sacrifice for others. When we see our gifts that are given through us as the steward of God's gifts is is God's contribution, not ours. It changes the way we view everything. That's what James is saying. Your your desires are corrupted because you're not seeing things through the lens of God's wisdom. Even when you pray, you're getting this wrong. Earlier, he asked us to pray for wisdom. Here in verse 3, he says, when you ask, I'm sorry, in verse the end of verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. He's saying you pray, and even when you're praying, you're praying from the wrong perspective. You're praying about how you can add to yourself. This is a real blow to the prosperity uh, preachers in our world today. Because here he's saying you're asking so that you can benefit yourself. Instead, you come to the Lord to seek his will and to seek to bless others. So what is it, where is he going from here? He goes on in verse 4 to say, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? Not only does God compare our conflicts with the devastation of war, but he compares our disordered affections, the things that we love, with adultery. Adultery and war. Adultery and murder. How much more coerced can we get in James? And what is adultery? Adultery happens. That's when a, two spouses, one of them cheats on the other one or, or falls in love or has an affair with someone else that, that isn't their spouse. Adultery happens when love that is supposed to be devoted, reserved for one's spouse, is instead given to another. My wife, as my wife, has every right to expect that not just my love and my physical affection is reserved for her, but even that my emotions and, and my, my flirtations and, and all of those things are reserved for her. She has a right to expect that because that's the kind of vow we've made to one another. And God is comparing our relationship to him is like our relationship with a spouse. 
God is saying that you have been, we have been adulterous, that the church is guilty of being adulterous because we, we, we are making friends with the things that are at war with God. We are flirting with sin. We are flirting with the way, world's ways of thinking. We're giving ourselves over to something that is against God. We're taking something that is truly God's, that he has the right to be jealous for, and we're giving it over to something else. question is, is God's wisdom aligning my life with God? And here we see that God's response to it is something that we don't usually see, we don't think of as attached to God, but it's jealousy. It says that he's jealous for our affections. It says, do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he's caused to dwell in us? There's multiple ways this could be translated. I think the NIV translates it really well, and it's helpful for us to think of it that way. He's given us the Spirit. He's given us our, the Spirit that lives within us, not the Holy Spirit necessarily, but just the human Spirit. And He designed us and created us to have a relationship with Him. And when we live for the world and we ignore God's laws and we live for ourselves, it says that God longs for that. He's jealous of it because it's rightfully His. He longs for us to be in relationship with him, but sin separates us from God's love. We also see that it's God loves, God's love that draws us back. That leads us to the second big question. What do you want was the first question. The second one, what do you need? What do we do when we find ourselves in this place where we're finding our affections are disordered, our loves are disordered, our actions are messed up, we're fighting with God's people, we're fighting with each other, we're, we're all torn up inside, our affections, our, our, our desires, our joys and our longings are, are all torn up. What do we do? We see in verse 6, it says, but he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he shows grace to the humble. When we find ourselves in a place where we are at war with God, and we are at war with God's people, we find ourselves in a place where we realize that our affections have been drawn in, and we just love the things of this world, and we don't really have much room in our hearts for God, and we come to our senses about that, it says that God gives us more grace. In that place where we are where we are, are desperate, we find that God is reaching out and pleading and drawing us to himself. In our place of sin, where we deserve judgment, what do we receive? We receive grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. When we realize, if you're sitting in your seat this morning and you're feeling some twinges of conviction for the way you've responded to other people, even maybe this last week. Don't just receive that as just a twinge to just be ignored, but receive it instead as God's grace in your life. God's pouring out his grace on you that you will see your own sin and you will return from your sin and, and to return to Christ and his love. He says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. You remember back in in the early, early chapters of James where he's reminding these people that to not take pride in their wealth or to, not to be overly distru- dis- dis- dismay, uh, dismayed about their poverty, but to understand who they are in Christ. That's what he's doing here for us. He's causing us to remember the fact that in Christ we are made humble, but in our humility, in our humbling ourselves before God, that God is the one who can raise us up. 
God's against those who think that they've got it all together, but he's there and he's gracious towards those who humble themselves before him. What do we need? We need grace. And what do we get? We get God's grace. And then he ends this section by saying, what do we do? What do you want? We want the wrong things. What do we need? We need God's grace. And so then what do we do? Here's what James' advice for us. Very practical in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. I can remember my brother and I fighting, especially after one time when he was tattling on me again. And I wrestled him to the ground, and all I wanted him to do was say, I submit. And he wouldn't submit. And I'm pinning him to the ground and say, submit. As soon as you submit, I'll let you up. And he wouldn't do it, and I wouldn't let him up. What's happening here is this idea of saying uncle to God. God says, submit yourselves then to God. The difference between my brother and I and us and God is a a, a difference of massive degrees. God is our Lord and our Savior. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He is the one who rules all things. He is the just and rightful king. And so what is the response of a Christian to this kind of a holy God? Come and worship the holy God, as we sang in our song. Submit ourselves then to God. Humble ourselves to God. We humble ourselves before the Lord. That is what we do. Secondarily, we resist the devil. James doesn't see this as just a purely physical thing. There is a spiritual element to this as well. We have to resist sin. We resist the temptation of the devil. We understand that worldly wisdom comes from the world, it's de- but it's also demonic. And he says, what do we have to do? We have to resist it. We submit ourselves to God. We resist the devil. We come near to God, he says, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is, first of all, our inward response to God. Our inward response, our spiritual response is humbling ourselves. It's resisting sin. It's drawing near to God, coming close to him in worship with God's people, in private worship, in prayer. When he says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, what he's saying is repenting of of our bad deeds. Do you have a habit of plopping yourself down on the couch and snarling at your wife and kids when they're interrupting your game? Repent. That's what it means by washing your hands. Turn away and say, this is selfishness on my behalf. Purify our hearts before the Lord. And instead of being double-minded, be single-minded of seeking God's face. And what is the response? He says, grieve and mourn and wail and humble yourselves before the Lord. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, we come before the Lord in our sin. It says, he will lift you up. Either you can puff yourself up in pride and be put down by God, or you can humble yourself and let God lift you up. The inward response towards God. But there's also an outward response towards our brother. This is where it gets really hard. In verse 11, it says this, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, speaks against the law, and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. 
There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? I don't know about you, but I kind of like to get judgy sometimes. <laughs> Makes me feel good. Makes me feel good to analyze your sin problems and to recognize they're not things that I struggle with. If you were to come to me, though, and start pointing out the sins in my life, of which there are many, I'm not going to like that so much. Because, you know, my sins I justify, and your sins, well, those are unjustifiable. Why would James tell this, these church people, these brothers and sisters, to be careful about the way they use their tongue to talk about each other? Why would he, worry, why would he challenge them to be careful about how they're, they're judging one another? There's a place, of course, to recognize sin as sin. One day Jesus will come and reign as a judge, but it's also very interesting as we look at Jesus' life on this earth. We spent a lot of time over the, the weeks leading up to Easter examining how Christ responded. That Christ's main ministry on earth was not yet to judge. but It was to show the compassion and the love of Christ and of God toward people that needed saving. So how do we respond to one another? I'm thankful that as a church, I believe that God's given us a, a beautiful season of peace. You're sweet people, and I don't think we've had any fights in the last year that I can think of. But if we continue on by God's grace, there will be these temptations to fight because it's natural. It's in us. There's still sin in us. When we start doing that, we start judging each other's motives. Instead of seeing the good that God's doing in each other's lives, we start seeing the the evil intent, and sometimes we even can make up the evil intent. We sit in judgment of one another, and not just of their actions, but each other's motives and desires and what you want. And so instead of acting like Christ, that sees the broken and the needy and understands where they're coming from and gets down into the dirt with them and brings them up and shows them love and compassion, instead we sit like the judge, my inward response towards God must be of humility and repentance and, and, and uh, contriteness of heart. But our outward response toward each other has to be one of seeing our brother as also forgiven by Christ, also recipients of God's grace, also a work in progress in which the Holy Spirit is still doing a work in them. Our response toward our brother then doesn't become one of contention and judgment and of competing desires, but our desire towards our brother or sister in Christ has to then become instead the same mindset that Christ has towards them, which is a, 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 a position of compassion and grace. And this is what Christ calls us to. And this is what he calls us to at the table. Jesus Christ takes off his robe at the table. And he gets down in the position of a servant. And he tells these disciples, these ones who imagine they're going to be great in God's kingdom, and says, the only way for you to be great is for you to humble yourself and to serve like me. So we come to the table as humble recipients of God's grace. And if we see ourselves as the humble recipients of God's grace, what else can we do? But extend that grace and that forgiveness and that mercy towards each other.